0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Jim Simons is probably not a name you know, but he and the company he created have changed your life, possibly in ways that you'll find thrilling, possibly in ways that you'll find deeply unsettling. Simons had always had big dreams ever since he was little, and one of those dreams was to be really, really good at math.
1: So when I was a kid, the family doctor would tell me, you're a bright Jewish boy, you should be a doctor. I said, well, I don't know. I think I might like to do something with math, but he would say, look, you can't make any money doing that stuff.
0: And that love of math and order, it hasn't disappeared, even though he's now in his 80s. Here's Simons and his wife, Marilyn, talking about how immersed he can get in numbers.
1: When you're really in the middle of mathematics, you're thinking about it all the time. In the shower, when you're walking down the street.
2: Jim can't help but measure everything. He always wants me to
1: press the door close button on the elevator before I press our floor, because it would save two seconds. I told them
0: I have two seconds to spare. But I mentioned that doing math was only one of Jim Simon's dreams.
2: Yes, he's an academic, and he goes down as one of the greatest geometers of the past fifty, hundred years, but he also really, really loves money. And he's not... Ashamed in any way about that, he wanted to get rich.
0: Gregory Zuckerman is a writer at The Wall Street Journal who has chronicled the rise of a man who seems to relish the fact that most people don't know who he is. But Simon's decisions have changed both the economics and politics of this country. And that's in part because he and his colleagues did get very, very rich.
2: He's worth 23 billion dollars today, and yet um, he's no longer trading. He's no longer running his investment firm. He still owns a big chunk of it and makes about a billion and a half dollars a year. Not even going into the office more than once a year to chair a meeting or two. So it's it's not a bad life.
0: Zuckerman is the author of the book The Man Who Solved the Market: How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution, and he'll tell you something a little bit unexpected. Simons' firm may have been the single most important factor in getting Donald Trump elected, even though Simons is a Democrat. They've also increased the economic inequality of the country, even though all they wanted to do in the beginning was find a pattern that nobody else could see. And we're going to get to the politics and the inequality parts of this story in a few minutes. But first, Simons had to turn Wall Street upside down. He had to change the way that people got rich. When I was a kid, there was a show on about how to invest in the stock market. My mom really liked to watch it, and I would watch it with her, even though I didn't understand it super well.
1: Good evening, I'm Louis Rukeyser. This is Wall Street Week. Welcome back.
0: The show was on public television stations, and it featured a very quirky host.
1: Well, this was the week when the best example for market forecasters was set by the Reverend Jimmy Swaggart. Confess that you've sinned, don't be too specific about the numbers, and step down for three months.
0: Every Friday night, Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser highlighted the market's great investors, in addition to the host's pithy comments. And these great investors would say things like, computer chips are going to be an important part of the economy. You might want to invest in Intel. Or there's this coffee shop. It's spreading across the country. It's called Starbucks. I think it's got a bright future. There were folks like Peter Lynch from Fidelity Investments who made heaps of money by investing in companies with products he understood. First of all, you have to know what you own, whether it's a fund or a stock, and you have to have a reason for it. And you ought to be able to explain to an 11-year-old and two minutes or less why own this. and this sucker's going up, is not a good reason. I've tried that one; it's not a doesn't work. Lynch bought relatable stocks like Dunkin' Donuts, and famously, Greg Zuckerman says Lynch would play up the ordinariness of the stock tips that he got.
2: Peter Lynch's wife came home one day and said, "Hey, there's this new type of pantyhose; they're called legs." They're available not just in uh, retail stores, but in the local drugstore, and I think they're, they're going to do pretty well. And Peter Lynch was convinced, and he backed up the truck and bought a lot of shares and did really well on the maker of Legs. And frankly, he wrote books that sold millions of copies and encouraged others to do similar things.
0: But Jim Simon saw something else in the market, something that would relegate the Peter Lynch's and the Warren Buffett's to, in many ways, a quaint bygone era. And what Simon saw had nothing to do with donuts or coffee or pantyhose. It had to do with detecting patterns invisible to most other people.
2: And it's like seeing something that no one else can see. And I think it's partly because they just came from a different approach. I mean, the irony of this whole story is that the people who mastered the market, the people who have these ridiculous returns, I mean, Jim Simons and his colleagues are up 66% a year since 1988. So they're the ones who solve the market. And yet they're the people that don't really care about investing. They don't really care about the markets even. Some of them aren't even capitalists. They're scientists and the mathematicians. Sometimes their own spouses are the ones who manage their family portfolios. They look at this like a mathematical challenge. And they said, you know, we're going to take a different approach. And that's part of the reason why I think they succeeded. They were unique. They were trailblazers and they were pioneers. People have since tried to do what they're doing and they're catching up, I one can argue. But they just took a different approach.
0: Zuckerman, the Wall Street Journal writer, says that while lots of Americans were relying on the wisdom of stock pickers in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, these are people who dutifully read the annual reports of Ford and General Mills and American Airlines. Simons was turning to something that seemed, and
2: was, kind of half-baked in those days. Computers that could predict the future. They created an approach using data. Before, you know, people were talking about big data. They were buying it up left and right and believing in that approach. And they were doing things like creating predictive algorithms, things that govern our lives today, um, everything from Amazon and Netflix on down, they were doing in the 80s.
0: But just as those algorithms would prove hugely helpful in predicting the next show that you'd want to watch on Netflix or the next book you'd want to buy on Amazon or the next update you'd want to read on Facebook, they also proved hugely helpful in allowing Jim Simons and the firm that he started, Renaissance Technologies, to predict the stock market. And if you've ever wondered what would happen if you could predict the market, well, it's pretty simple. You'd get fabulously, incredibly
2: rich. Let's say, hypothetically, every Friday afternoon, it looks like a certain investment goes down maybe a certain stock maybe a bond etc maybe there are reasons for it it could be because a lot of traders before the end of the weekend they kind of want to sell because they're a little worried something happens over the weekend uh-huh. so maybe i should sell a little bit at the end of the day on a friday it doesn't happen all the time it doesn't happen every investment but they figured out ways to identify those investments that were maybe going down a little bit more than they should or going up a little bit more than they should and they were looking for these short term patterns. And again, they didn't care about the story behind the companies. And if anything, frankly, they thought those were dangerous to embrace these stories. And, you know, you and I today, or I know I personally, sometimes you get get caught up in these stories, be it in Uber or WeWork or even Theranos. and I do think that there it was more of the scientific approach that they embraced. In other words, developing a hypothesis, using data as opposed to intuition and judgment and gut instinct. And if you look at society today broadly, I mean, mistakes are made. Be it in the White House, be it federal reserve, be it in in in, in Congress, etc. Because people don't look at the data, they don't look look at the facts. They don't look. They don't use science. They use. Intuition and gut instinct. And that was what Jim Simons and his colleagues were saying. There's a different way to make decisions, not just about investing, but broadly speaking. And today, I would think um, we all kind of have embraced to some extent this approach, be it um, Amazon or Netflix or day-to-day decisions by doctors even. they, It's using rules as opposed to gut.
0: Okay. So it wasn't like how well, like how good we thought Ford Motor Company's cars were or, um, or Tesla's cars or whatever. It was more like they were just looking for little tiny patterns like, gee, Ford dips on Wednesday mornings. We're going to bet on that and we're just going to make some money on it every Wednesday morning.
2: So that was the approach till around I'd say 2005. It was all pricing okay. data, looking at past data, buying it up, capturing it when no one cared. I mean, he was sending people down to the Federal Reserve office in Lower Manhattan and they were writing down by hand. This is talking the 70s and then the 80s, data going back hundreds of years. They've got data going back to even to the 1700s that no one else has for different investments. And they were looking for, okay, in these circumstances, let's say there's I don't know, a famine in Australia yeah. What does wheat do? What right. does wheat do a week later? Um, how does the market react? So they're looking and... at
0: weather. They're looking at everything. They're kind of feeding it all in.
2: Exactly. So first okay. it was pricing data, and then they decided, we're going to get every kind of data, anything you can imagine, they buy. And this is before the era of you know big data, when everyone wanted data. They were digesting every kind of possible type of data, and not just buying it, they were cleaning it. In other words, making sure it was accurate, double-checking it. And no one was doing it at the time. No one cared about this data. And they said, you know what? We think there's some patterns below the surface, and we're not going to try to use our intuition and, and judgment to figure it out. We're going to let the data lead us there. So they were buying every kind of data, looking for repeating patterns with the assumption that they would continue in the future.
0: Um, what do you think the role was of um, technology, computers? Because – as um, Simons is trying to figure out how do you how do you crack the code of the market, it's the 70s, it's the 80s, it's the 90s. It's also the era of computers getting better and better. I mean, they're not that good, but they're getting better and better. What's the role here between math and like computing power as it gets better and better?
2: So early on, their computing power was limited, and it led to problems. They developed this automated trading model that would tell them what to buy and what to sell, And then one day a regular called up and said, hey, Jim, um, you've cornered the market on Maine potatoes. For some reason, he wasn't even sure why, his computers were telling him to buy lots and lots of these potatoes. And it led to millions of dollars of losses when they had to sell these contracts. So for a while- Was that a computer
0: error? Like, they should not have actually bought those potatoes?
2: Yes. And they weren't even sure why. I mean, frankly, what they were doing (laughs) was an early version of machine learning. Their models were telling them what to do, and their models were learning along the way. In so many ways, he's a pioneer in terms of big data and predictive algorithms, but also in terms of machine learning. And it gave him a huge advantage over everybody else. And is that
0: still what happens, that it is not people who tell you what to buy? People just sort of figure out, uh, tell the sort of computers how to do patterns, and then computers execute. That's true. That's what's yeah. happening okay. at
2: Renaissance Technologies. Okay, and it leads to problems sometimes because, and I write about it in the book a few times. There were crises within the firm where they were facing substantial losses. And you and I, let's say our portfolio is down a lot, it's troubling, but we know why it's happening. Let's say you own I don't know too many shares of Microsoft or Facebook, and technology's down. It's It's, right. it's distressing, but at least we know why it's happening. For them, it was even more. Uh, distressing and perplexing because they didn't know why they were facing huge sudden losses because their system was learning and was trading on its own and was buying and selling based on patterns and reinforcement etc so he developed this automated system that let him sleep at night the downside Mm -hmm. is he doesn't really know why it's buying and selling they can figure it out and they do figure it out it takes them a few days though
0: so um Simons and his company now, I think, make more money in a year than Hyatt Hotels. Uh, they make more money than like the huge toy giant Hasbro, than, than uh, Levi Strauss. Um, one of the curious things, though, about this company, unlike almost any other place out there, one of the curious things about Renaissance is that hardly anybody works there, right?
2: That is maybe the most remarkable factor here, that there are 320 employees of Renaissance technologies. And yet, as you suggest, they're making over $100 billion of trading profits every year. So everybody there is getting really, really wealthy. And some are impacting society uh, with that wealth uh, in different ways. So it's a fascinating and a shocking kind of um, shift in that you've got small number of Wall Street investors, or I would call them traders, moneymakers out in Long Island, the tip of Long Island, uh, controlling so much wealth. So let's take a quick pause here. I'm talking with Greg Zuckerman. He's a
0: writer at The Wall Street Journal and author of the book The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. And when we come back, I want to kind of pick up on that thread of what has the tremendous amount of wealth that Jim Simons and Renaissance Technologies generated, what's it done for and to America Turns out, may have gotten a president elected. We're going to dive into that story right after this. You're listening to Innovation Hub from WGBH Radio and PRX. I'm Kara Miller. You can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And that way you can grab or you can share any segment you want.
1: If I had a million
0: dollars, I'd buy. 1990s, a computer scientist at IBM got a call that would end up roiling politics to a degree I'm sure he could never have imagined. The man's name was Robert Mercer. He was a brilliant guy, but probably fair to say a quirky one.
2: He hardly speaks even within his own firm. He whistles all day long, um, different types of tunes, musical tunes and such.
0: Greg Zuckerman is a writer for The Wall Street Journal who has chronicled the rise of Mercer and the company that recruited him,
2: Renaissance Technologies. Every day, he would eat the same thing for lunch, a bag of sandwiches, usually either peanut butter, jelly, or tuna fish. And then he would open up a potato chip a bag and lay out all the potato chips from largest to smallest, eat the broken ones first, and then go from smallest to largest. And for years within the firm, he was seen as sort of quirky and unusual. He would sort of pick fights, but in a humorous way, usually, with his colleagues. Mercer is very conservative, and his colleagues often were quite liberal, left of center. And then, as the 2016 uh, election approached, they realized that Mercer actually had an interest in the election that they weren't aware of. That interest ran deep, very deep. Some believe
0: Robert Mercer was one of the most important people in getting Donald Trump elected. Why? Well, Mercer had a ton of money to spend on the election, and he had that money because he had been hired by a former mathematician named Jim Simons, a man intent on using math and computers to extract money from Wall Street in a way Wall Street had never seen before. Which is why the call to Mercer was made in the first place.
2: And At the time, Simons was relatively small, his hedge funds. They had figured out how to make a lot of money in things like bond futures and commodities and currencies, but they couldn't make money in stocks. And people within the firm said, "Okay, big deal. We're doing fine. Who cares if we don't get stocks? But Simon's wanted more. He knew that the only way to get really, really wealthy was to make money in the stock market because it's just a much bigger market than all the others. So you can manage a lot more and you can make a lot more.
0: And Simon's faith in Mercer was well founded. He did help Renaissance predict the stock market using computers. Simons became a billionaire many times over, as did Mercer. But what Mercer decided to do with that money, Zuckerman says, surprised a lot of his colleagues. He used his wealth to back Brexit and the website Breitbart. And then he invested, quite literally, in a struggling Republican presidential candidate,
2: Donald Trump. So by about 2014, and certainly 2015, Robert Mercer and his daughter, uh, Rebecca Mercer, uh, were both very politically involved in conservative causes and very convinced that they needed to recruit and back someone who wasn't from the mainstream in the GOP to run for president in 2016. Early on, they got behind Ted Cruz, but then when his campaign didn't go anywhere, they switched gears and became uh, the biggest financial backer of Donald Trump. Can I just ask you,
0: why did they want why didn't they just want whoever the Republican establishment wanted? Why weren't they just for Jeb Bush if they were conservative? Can you explain to me why they wanted to go outside of like what the party wanted?
2: Partly it was data. So this is what Jim Simons and his firm are all about, digesting data, understanding data that maybe other people aren't aware of or seeing it in different ways. And they saw patterns. Robert Mercer saw data that suggested that only an outsider had a chance of beating Hillary Clinton huh, and of okay. winning. Okay. And he had a sense, his data suggested, that there was this unrest and unhappiness in the heartland. And they needed an outsider to appeal uh, to those kinds of voters.
0: Um- He also, even though a lot of people haven't heard of Robert Mercer, um, he installed really important people to uh, President Trump's or candidate Trump's campaign. Steve Bannon, Kellyanne Conway. I mean, he didn't just write a check. He got a lot more involved than that, right? Breitbart, he helped fund Breitbart.
2: That's exactly right. So by the summer of 2016... The Trump campaign was flailing. There was the Billy Bush incident. uh, Polls were down. It really didn't seem like they had much of a chance of winning. And Robert Mercer and his daughter, Rebecca, were very concerned. And Rebecca flew out to go see Donald Trump at a fundraising event in Long Island and said, you are not going to win unless you appoint and, and hire these two individuals who work for us and put them in your campaign, and that was Steve Bannon and Kellyanne Conway. And one can have criticisms of Conway and and Bannon, but when Trump did follow their advice, follow Mercer's advice, and hire uh, Bannon and Conway, it stabilized the campaign. You could see improvement in the polling, and the results were there a few months later. So one can really argue that without Robert Mercer, there was no Donald Trump in the White House. So
0: Jim Simons, who founded Renaissance, and Robert Mercer, obviously these are two of the people who became billionaires out of the creation of the hedge fund. Um, Simons, my understanding is is that he was a Hillary Clinton backer. He's Democrat. How does that dynamic play out when you've got essentially battling billionaires within one company?
2: Yes. So here it was, 2016, and Jim Simons is a left of center individual. He backed Hillary Clinton. He would go on to be one of the biggest backer of Democrats in the 2018 congressional elections as well. And he was hoping Hillary would win, obviously. And here he is with the co-CEO of his firm, Robert Mercer, who is emerging as the biggest backer and most important backer of Donald Trump. And it wasn't just Jim Simons who had concern about that. Within the firm, there was just anxiety and tension because there are a lot of left of center uh, scientists and mathematicians who work at this firm, Renaissance Technologies. And on the one hand, Simons told friends, well, I can't fire him for his political beliefs and what he's doing politically. And yet he had friends and, and people within the firm who had real concerns and were getting upset that Robert Mercer was getting behind, not just a Republican, but this type of Republican. And so there were all kinds of mixed emotions within the firm, but eventually it caused tension because morale was impacted and they worried about hiring and whether they can continue to beat the market. And frankly, they don't compete in a lot of ways. They don't see themselves competing with Wall Street and firms like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley when it comes to hiring talent. They worry about competing with Facebook and, and Google and Silicon Valley. And they did worry that... Um, Their reputation was being impacted, the firm's reputation, um, through Robert Mercer's political actions. Is Mercer still connected with the firm? So he's still at the firm, but eventually Jim Simons had to come to him and say, Bob, you've got to step down as co-CEO. I hate to say it, but it's impacting morale.
0: Um, Do you, in your view... Is Renaissance still the company that is still ahead of everybody else? Like, I know they're very secretive. I know they hire like the smartest math and physics and stuff, PhDs. Do they still have an edge, or have other people figured out what they're doing?
2: And are they catching up? So, I'm a uh, jaded <laughs> journalist, so I keep waiting for them to stumble. Okay. Um, I'm skeptical they can continue to beat the market like they have and beat all their competitors. But truth be told, they continue to do so. Uh, even this year and the last few years, they've outpaced their competitors in and, and the broader market. There are more people doing what they do, which is quantitative trading, using models and automated systems and algorithms to trade as opposed to intuition and, and judgment. So I am skeptical they can continue to outpace everybody else. But so far, so good over there.
0: Um, Jim Simons was asked uh, a few years ago, um, basically, if he worried about the the kind of brain drain he's created, where now, if you're really, really smart at at math, instead of like staying in academia and and you know making sure that math is furthered, now you can like go work for him and buy a yacht and a penthouse somewhere. Um, and so here's his response about this idea of like. Are all the smart people now going to be diverted from the really important problems?
1: I don't think we should worry about it too much. It's still, it's still a pretty small industry. And in fact, bringing in uh, science into the investing world has, has improved that world. It's, it's reduced volatility. It's increased liquidity. Uh, spreads are, are narrower because people are trading that kind of stuff. So I don't, I'm not too worried about Einstein going off and... Uh, starting a hedge fund.
0: Greg, is that optimistic? Or is, I mean, is that right? Or is he papering over the fact that there is a brain drain and smart people are going to you know make money to buy yachts?
2: I would disagree with Simons here. Okay. I think it's a not a healthy thing that okay. a firm in Long Island that trades stocks and other investments is able to hire some of the greatest um, scientists and mathematicians of uh, our nation and, and around the world when they could be pursuing other kinds of endeavors and frankly i think simons himself in his philanthropy it would suggest what he's doing also would agree with that concern because he is subsidizing the salaries of the top math and science public school teachers in the whole new york state and to his credit Uh, he's giving them $15,000 each to supplement and amplify their salaries. Why? Because he doesn't want them leaving (laughs) teaching to go work for private industry firms like Renaissance. And I've sort of called him on that. I've told that to him. Isn't there a little hypocrisy there that on the one hand, you're concerned about the future of math education and science education in this country, and yet you're hiring away mathematicians and scientists. And I think he doesn't see it necessarily that way. And one can argue that, okay, they're going to go work for this hedge fund and make a lot of money, but then they're going to go on afterwards and work for nonprofits, and many do. So I don't want to suggest that it's a complete negative for society. A lot of the times they do really remarkable and important work after spending some time at Renaissance and making a lot of money. But, net, I don't think it's a healthy thing that scientists and mathematicians are leaving those worlds uh, to go trade stocks.
0: When you step back from all this research that you've done, and you know, looking at really a very tiny firm in Long Island, in some you know you, you said just three hundred something people working there, in some ways not that important, and yet. This impact, you know, on from from Brexit to the election of President Trump to basic scientific research to, uh, to to changing the markets, how the stock market is traded overall, which affects everybody, even if you don't have any money in the stock market, because most people work for some company that's traded. I mean, there's there's all these implications. What do you what do you make of this tiny little secretive firm where people don't really want to talk? And um, yet the impact is is there.
2: To me, the success of Renaissance Technologies and Jim Simons in particular kind of underscores this theme that we talk about a lot, how few people in society are having such impact, be it uh, in science and in uh, health and in philanthropy in education, but also in politics and other areas. So... One can argue that's not healthy. One could also say, well, Jim Simons is doing all kinds of interesting work with his money and in his philanthropy, and it's going to benefit society broadly. So one can have a debate about the impact, but it underscores that theme that so few people in our society today are having such great impact.
0: Gregory Zuckerman is author of The Man Who Solved the Market, How Jim Simons Launched the Quant Revolution. He's also a special writer at The Wall Street Journal- Greg, thanks for being here.
2: Oh, great to be here.
1: Money don't get, everything is true. But what it, don't
0: get I can use I need. Money. What I want, that's what I want. What I want what if you want to know more about Robert Mercer and his impact on politics, we've got an article by Greg Zuckerman on our website that explains the details of how his family became power brokers in Trump's campaign. You can find that at innovationhub.org.